But it says that no man could tame him. Neither could any man tame him. And that, of course, continued to be true until Jesus came along. It says that he would cry out and he would also not just be in a bad place, not just be set apart, but then his body, which is given to the service of these devils, also would be paying another high price. He would even cut himself among the two. What a terrible position. Can you imagine that when he saw people coming, he probably ran out to terrorize them. But we should see the difference here in his approach to Jesus. He says, when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. He ran and worshipped him. And he begged him. He said, please, I beg you, my God. And so he's submitting to a higher power because I think this devil knows that the final time has not come yet when all the devils shall be gathered together by the angels, as the scriptures say. And so his time isn't yet. And you see it other times in the scriptures where it says, are you come to torment us before the time when the devil is answering Jesus? But sir, he's begging him for help. But what was this devil's name? It was Legion, which meant there were many, many devils. But also, Legion is a term of not just a group of people, but a group of soldiers. Their purpose there was one of the war. This war has continued to this very day. The enemy wars against God, and wars particularly against the saints. And at every available opportunity, they would take advantage, just like they have with this man. And were it not for the grace of God, there's no reason why they couldn't continue to do this to all of us this very day. We have no power over them. But Jesus shows that he doesn't just have power over them. They dreadfully fear him. Dreadfully fear him. He begged him. He said, what have I to do with thee? What have I done to you? I haven't done anything. He's begging him, please, please, leave me alone. And he told him his name, and his name was Legion. And he besought him that he would not send them away out of the country. Now that's something of an ominous term. What, is he scared of being somewhere besides Palestine? Did he not want to go see the new world? Could he not go over the water? No, of course for him, that country which he was in, that land of war, is here. And he knew also of heaven, the place over which now we know that Jesus holds the keys. He holds the keys to hell itself. He holds a great many keys, in fact, but certainly the keys of death and hell are in his possession. And so he had the ability to lock these ones away forever, never to be seen again until hell is thrown into the lake of fire, as the scriptures say. And what a terrible end that this devil would find. And he was hoping to have that delayed for a little while so they could reap some more happiness. And Jesus gave it to him. It says here that he besought him that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there were nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feed, and the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And so consider this Jesus having a tender care and affection for the man who's been bound by these devils all these years. It doesn't say what the inception of his possession was. It doesn't say whether it was something that he desired in the first place that eventually turned against him. It doesn't say how they came to be in control of him at all. There's no knowledge given that. But what is surely given here is proof of Jesus' care over his people. At another place, Jesus says that God sees all the sparrows. He knows when they fall. And so how much more is a man than a sparrow? But here you have a measure also. How much more is a man than a whole herd of swine? This does give us a bit of insight into God's love and affection for us. But we should remember that God does also love all of his creatures. He loves his animals. And so I think he suffers these things to be so because God has priorities. And he can, as they say, chew gum and walk at the same time, which is to say, do two different things at once. We can both agree that it's prudent that we take good care of God's creation and we consider his things and that we manage them well, but also that a man is worth more than all the animals on the earth. 
And the chief proof of that we have is that Jesus came in the first place. That he came to die for us. He didn't come to die for any of the animals. And certainly, since the time of Noah, countless animals have died because of the reason of sin in the world. That is why we consume them at all. And so we see Jesus having the chief priority here being this man's freedom. And this is what he's concerned with more than anything else. And it says that the unclean spirits went out, entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. So you see, the enemy's only concern is destruction. It's all he's ever worried about. You see, this, this band of his soldiers, and the chief thing they want to do is just destroy the first thing they get their hands on. And they've been tormenting and destroying this man all this time. The enemies of God have no good in them whatsoever. And yet we see that this wasn't the end of it. It says that those that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. Now, this has happened all throughout the gospel. That people have heard about Jesus and they'll come out to see him. It's one of the reasons why he fed the 5,000 is because they were all there to see more about him. There's times when they came out because they heard a devil be free. There was times they came out because they heard of miracles. There was times when they came out just because they heard he was a great teacher. There were some who came out because they knew he was the son of God. Interestingly enough, the only one who did this so far here is the devils. They came out to meet him knowing he was the son of God. But listen to the people's reaction. It says that they were told what happened. They, it says they that saw it told, him, told them how it fell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And so they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. But you see, beloved, there was an expense here. It cost them to have this man free. I don't know how many people owned the pigs, but at that time there's a possibility because there were hirelings there, there were more than one person who were there feeding this wine, that maybe there was more than one owner of this group of pigs. And so it may be that this town just paid a heavy price for this man's freedom. It may be that there was sacrifice that they weren't even asked permission by God if they could give up. He just took it. It was a necessary byproduct from God's side. The tragedy here is what it revealed, because they now knew that God, Jesus here, had done two things. He had destroyed their stuff, and he had freed them. And they only concentrated on one of the two. You see, they begged him to leave, to depart from their coast. And when he was coming to the ship, as you can see, he obeyed, and he, I should say, he answered their prayer, giving them exactly what they wanted. So we should be careful what we pray for. It says, when he was coming to the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. What a right and proper response. For when you see the power of God existing, whether it be in your life or in the life of others, if you beg him, man, please stay with you. Hold on with two hands. Wrestle with him as Jacob wrestled with God. Wrestle with him as he gives us the power to wrestle with him in the first place. Please stay. And Jesus also did not give him exactly what he wanted. Jesus suffered him not. But saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and he that had compassion, and hath had compassion on thee. There's a few things in this verse that are worth observing with all of your mind. The first is that Jesus, loving him, caring for him, having given him his freedom, made him immediately go and be away from him. So we know that there are times and seasons when we are not near to him, we don't feel him, we know he's far away. But we have instruction for exactly what we should do at this time, which is exactly what Jesus says to do here. Go home, tell thy friends how great things the Lord hath done for thee. Now, is that not the gospel? It says, is that not the great news? 
If there are those among us who end up becoming sick with the virus that everyone's concerned about, and you get sick and then you are healthy again, there's a good chance it's going to be a big story for you. You could be telling a lot of people. But God has freed you from sin. The killer. It has killed all men from the dawn of time. A 100% success rate. Sin has. Aside from two that are currently waiting. I think they may eventually die. I don't know. But it says that there were two who were gathered up and not yet died. But everyone else has died. 100% success rate has God pulled them out. And so we know that sin is significantly more deadly than the virus. And so God has freed us of that. What should we do? We should tell. Go and tell it. Tell all. Tell anyone who will listen. But also, note what he says, particularly, that God had had compassion on him. For remember that Jesus was following his father. He was doing the will of his father. And so he's revealing here that even his own compassion he was shared with the Father. That the Father had seen him even when he was set apart from the camp. Even when he was among the dead. Even when he was destroyed and unable to be captured. That God had continued to have compassion on him at that time. It says, and he departed. Those are three very sad words. I imagine that many of us can sympathize. Probably all of us at that moment. When we knew, when we had that sweet pleasure of Jesus' presence with us, whether it be in the fellowship of the saints, the reading of the word, the singing, or in just your everyday life and experience, and then it says, and he departed. There are sad times and seasons when God has elected for that to be the case. I don't know why he does what he does, but it fits his pattern, right? He made summer and winter, seed time and harvest. And you don't know any more about God's plan for you than the tomato seeds that are currently being germinated all across the country for this coming spring know about exactly when the times and seasons are, or what the times and seasons are for. Certainly, all things that are planted go through unhappy experiences. Times when things seem like they're just dead, when you have no more life than what's in the tiny kernels. And yet when spring comes and his presence returns and the warmth and light of life continues, we rejoice in him. But when he is away, we should continue to Bless his name. It says that the man began to publish in the capitals what, how great things Jesus had done for him. That all men did want. Oh, that our obedience should be so simple and so succinct. But there's one more thing to consider here. There were two roles when this story started. One man was set apart from the king. One man was had all manner of sickness poured out upon him. One man was living among the dead and dwelled among the tombs. Now, one man did not have any right presence with God. He had been separated from him and was even pleading with him. That one man had no company and no friends and no one who he known for all that time who loved him any longer. None but the God who had been willfully separated from him. By the end of this book, by the end of all of the books of the gospel, Jesus has taken his place. Jesus is now the one crying out to God, have mercy, my God, my God. Jesus is the one who is set, sent among the tombs. Jesus is the one who has no one who is willing to stay for him. All departed from him. And Jesus did that. Not just here for this man, but he did it also for us. He is the one who took our place here. He is the one who cried out among the tombs at the end. And he is the one who is separated from God for our sake. Let us always remember this wonderful and great thing. Let us heed his words and obey the call. Thank you for your attention. Brother John, for that good exposition on a very serious matter and serious nature. And all of us should be concerned that the devil today is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
you know, we, we hear about these stories and we think, well, that's the bottom of the era. And not the case, is it? Well, uh, we're certainly very thankful for each one that, that is here, and our prayers continue uh, for Brother Lloyd this morning. And, uh, you know, he's overwhelmed, of course, with his dad. I know several of you have come out here and preach, and he's not here. So, having said that, let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer on his behalf. May the Lord encourage and uh, strengthen him, if you will. Dear Heavenly Father, we once again appreciate what has been said that redounds to your glory, that even the unclean spirits are obedient unto thee. Not just the winds and the waves, but those spirits that are contrary, our adversaries. We ask your Lord that even now we would be free from that which keeps others in bondage, in fear, in fright. Help us, Lord, to trust the Almighty. And so we come before thee and we lift up our dear pastor, Brother Lloyd, that you would strengthen him in this hour, that you would bless him and his father, that you would give him insight and direction. Uh, we ask you, Lord, that you would encourage him in his heart, that he faint not, nor be weary in his soul. And we ask that you would lift him up and return speedily to our church. Uh, we ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, we invite your attention in the last half of our sermon time this morning to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We're riding here on the uh, tail end, if you will, of the, uh, the day of Pentecost. It had fully come now. And we are in the fourth chapter. Excuse me, the sixth chapter. Luke says, and in those days, verse 1... When the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily administration. And when the twelve called the multitude unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But he said, concerning the apostles, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Well, I was often uh, curious what you might think an apostolic church would look like today. And I hope and pray that we would not too, uh, be too far removed from the early church here that we read about. In other words, the church, the New Testament today, should resemble or have some relationship to our church that we read about here, which is being laid, if you will. The foundation, at least, the stones. Now, I'm convinced, I personally am convinced that the church, the New Testament church, was first formulated when the Lord Jesus Christ called whom he would on the shores of Galilee. He called men, disciples. He ordained men to be a part of what? Uh, not just the broader kingdom perspective, but also the local church, the visible body where Christ is the head, their subjects, there are those that are baptized and unite with him in that cause. And so here we have a little further on uh, the church 
and its infant stage, if you will. It's just getting started. Maybe it's under tugboat power, if you will, coming out of the harbor and not yet ready to sail on its own. There's a lot of things that we read about in the book of Acts and we're reminded, especially today in New Testament times, that this, in fact, is foundational to things that we read about. The day of Pentecost, for instance, was a great confirmation, uh, an answer of a fulfillment prophesied years ago by Joel, a pouring out of the Holy Spirit where all flesh prophesies, your sons and your daughters. And the great contrast between that and the Old Testament church, or the church in the wilderness, was the fact that the Lord's Spirit would be poured out uh, not on a select few, those that stood as a mediator, those elders, those fathers that stood as representatives of God and taught the people in particular, but the Spirit of God would be poured out on all the people. And I remind you, dear brother, that on the uh, day of Pentecost, when they had fully come, there were not only men, devout men out of every nation, but also women over there in prayer and uh, consecrating themselves before the Lord that we read about there early on. So when we think about uh, a church today, we understand the fact that it resembles what we read about in the book of Acts early. But we understand there's some distinctions. There's a little bit of distinctions, obviously. Now some people take it word for word and they claim the same gifts, talents, miracles, healings uh, are applicable today. And we find that there's a great distinction. Great distinction. A foundation, if you think about it, is something that is firstly. So if I mentioned to you the roof or the windows or the door, uh, it would be completely different than the foundation. Although the foundation is important because that's what is firstly. And in the church, excuse me, the church in the Bible is reflected as a building. And the Lord Jesus Christ built His church. And He says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so it is likened to a building. And so the foundation, of course, the Lord Himself being the chief cornerstone. This is a big deal in the Bible. And so the church today is built on the same foundation of the apostles. That means their doctrine, their practice, is the basis for what we are doing today. If we walk into a New Testament church today, I'm using my hands as quotation marks, it should resemble something out of the New Testament. It shouldn't be far removed from what we read about. In this particular case, um, there's a, a concern over the murmuring or the complaining between the Grecians and the Hebrews. And the apostles are going to get the church together and they're going to call on the members of the church. This is the Jerusalem church. There already has been added 3,000 souls to this church. Uh, and so it's a large body of believers. But we see as it is in its infant stage, just the foundational aspect, that it needs assistance and help. And this is what this text really refers to. But it's interesting because one may think by the virtue of such a miracle as on the day of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that the church wouldn't need any help. That it would be fully functional and appropriate to meet every need without any help at all. But 
what we understand Pentecost to be was the confirming of what Christ promised that he would be with his people that he would be in their presence and of course that original promise given to Joel back in the Old Testament includes those two very important, important things I will be in the midst of Israel God said and then secondly I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and they shall prophesy and so it is today you don't need to be a member of the Levitical priesthood in order to prophesy. You, men and women, brothers and sisters, share in the testimony of teaching and preaching in terms of, maybe not in a public way such as we have here, but in terms of sharing the gospel. As we already heard, publishing, telling, the evangelical nature of the gospel, the good news sent forth, and, and we are all in this together. And so in that sense, um, you know, the, 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 the day of Pentecost sets the stage that the Lord's people would be witnesses unto the uttermost parts of the earth. From Jerusalem to Samaria, from Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth will bear witness to the glorious presence of God. And as we mentioned prior on another occasion, we can say this, that the fulfillment of these of, this, uh, of, of what the Lord promised to His disciples, that He would be with them. He was referring to that presence of His person in the Spirit of Christ, so that He would be with them. He, would be, he, is, is, he is more with us today than He was physically with the apostles in that day. He is more with you and I, because He dwells in our hearts, than He was with those in a physical sense. That's what He meant. So... Um, but what do we have since the day of Pentecost? I mean, almost immediately, we have contempt. We have those who forbid and forbade the disciples to preach in the name of Christ. We have confusion because of the fifth chapter, just the previous chapter. We have the difficult uh, confusion of Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Ghost. So we automatically and immediately have this tumult of problems in the church. And then we have a, a, a much stronger aspect of persecution where the apostles were arrested and put in jail. So we see not only contempt and confusion, but we see where the gospel is criminalized all of a sudden. Words like Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus all of a sudden uh, are a source of hostility by the world, by the religious rulers and leaders of the day. And might I add, it's very similar to what's going on today where... Christianity is leading by many of those in authority uh, with the idea that they need to criminalize a lot of the tenets of Christianity because they deem it hate speech, per se. And you can see that happen. Uh, the government may look at certain groups as hostile. And if I might remind several of you that the Courts are still involved with the little sisters of the poor uh, that work out of Catonsville and they're all over the country and the world on the way They're still defending themselves even to this day in the Supreme Court because when, you know, when one lawsuit failed, they keep coming up with another one and they keep attacking. And now they're trying to remove the religious status, if you will, of that group. But the point is, they consider them hostile. 
And they want to criminalize what they believe after the dictates of their conscience that all men are created, created equal. All men are created equal, even from the womb. So anyway, what we see that um, process coming on until now, we not only have contempt, we have confusion, we have criminalization, but we also have complaining. How about that for the early church? That's just been blessed with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Complaining. Notice what it says. The Hebrews and the Grecians were at each other's throat, if you will. Now, if you think about it, we've mentioned the fact that the church of God is like a, a house built on one foundation. That means it's supposed to grow. Peter says that we're lively stones built onto a spiritual house. And so, brothers and sisters, we're all together in this one house that's built by Christ. And we're promised that the gates of hell will not prevail. And I might add, according uh, to what we've already heard, that we're to have faith and embrace the sovereign grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and combating these kind of things that will throw us off course. But if I may use another metaphor or another analogy, that the, sh uh, the, the church is not only like a building, but it's also like a, a ship, if you will. That's why I like to use uh, Glenn Blanchard's definition of fellowship. He said, we're all in this boat together. Fellowship. We're included here. We have all things in common, if you will. And if we've been following, basically, when, what I said last week about repentance, remember, how it's a change of mind, which comes after the change of heart. Well, you can say now that fellowship is the singleness of heart. Where we have all things in common. We read about that in the second chapter. They continue daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They, can stay, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And so, in a sense, we're in this great boat, if you will. And it's been launched out into sea. And now, in our day and age, we no longer need the attendance of help. Certain gifts that were given to the church that were miraculous, like healings. <clears throat> there were some healings going on by the Apostle Peter that people were so amazed and marveled at the works of God, as we just heard. That they were even looking to get into the shadow, perhaps, if Peter passed by that maybe they would be healed from their sickness and disease. That's the kind of power that was being demonstrated in that particular day. But the gifts that we read about in that particular day are not prevalent today. <clears throat> that was particular to the apostolic age. Now, there's no apostles today. The apostles have long ceased. There were only 12 apostles. They built a foundation we built upon that. And that's why I say when you see and you come apart a New Testament church today, it should bear a relationship and resemblance to the original apostolic foundation and footing of the church. And if you want to know what a church looks like, look around. This is it. People gather, they continue with one accord, they fellowship, they grow bread together, they sang hymns, they prayed, and they preached. That's what it was. At the, the gifts of apostolic uh, gifts were given to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. But now, in our case this morning, 
And I'm going to move real quickly by that introduction into this. And that is, this is the text that most of us understand points to the first selection of the deacons in the church. The second office. And if you will, let me just turn real quick to Revelation. Well, excuse me, I'll just leave that one alone. Let me go to another text. You remember Paul the Apostle when he addressed the Philippians, he addressed all the saints. He's addressing all the saints and he says, and also, or which included the elders or bishops he used, and deacons. There's two opposites of the New Testament church. Um, no more, no less. And what we have today are elders and deacons. So we resemble, we have a relationship to the early church, don't we not? In the book of Ephesians, he furthers on the particular aspect of the ministry where we have the elders and bishops. We have pastors. That word is defined differently. Bishop, for instance, may mean an overseer. One, you know, Brother Boyd is an overseer. He looks out among the people and he, with his insight, wisdom, and prayerful consideration, knows his people. He prays for them, he meets with them. If there's a particular concern, he is concerned and he reflects that in his approach towards you. He's an overseer. And uh, a lot of people may get the wrong impression of a particular minister as being maybe in a position that he shouldn't really be. For instance, Peter warns of being lords over God's heritage. And the minister has rule over the people in one sense, and I like to show it this way. Uh, this is the rule of God. And he simply administers the word of God. The pastor or minister has no executive authority to dictate or follow him home and implement the things that he preaches in a personal way at your house. But he preaches the word and he relies on the Holy Spirit to teach it and make application to you in your heart. But in this particular text in Ephesians 4, he spells out the specific purpose for the ministry. He said for the, for the perfecting, for the maturing, for the growing, for the building up of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So that's the purpose of the ministry. But now we're setting the stage now for the deacons. And it's important for us to learn because we can gather something from this. My first impression with traditionalism came many years ago. I was a young pastor at Columbia, and there was a deacon who came to our church. Uh, he was a deacon of another church, moved to this part of the country, and came upon the Columbia church. And immediately he presented himself as to be the ruler of our church. He said, I'm going to tell you guys who to preach, when to preach, and what to preach. I said, what are you talking about? You see, he came from a section of the country where deacons basically ruled over the ministry. And I pointed out to him, I said, you know, the word deacon means servant. We're really servants of the people. And we are all together uh, equal in that sense in the ministry as we serve one another and the cause of Christ. The ministry has the obligation to teach the Bible. And then I pointed to him the facts of the scriptures concerning the, the purpose of deacons. And we never did see him again. Because Bible tradition is much more parallel 
than human or religious tradition. You've got to be careful about that. You know, this is the Bible. The Bible dictates to us what we do. And this is the beginning. In this murmuring and complaining between the Hebrews, those who spoke Jew, uh, Jew, uh, Greek, who here are represented by the Grecians, and other Jews who were speaking Hebrew. And the, point, the problem was that the Hebrew widows were being preferred over the Hellenist widows, those widows who belonged to the Grecians. Now, probably, if I can surmise this, that there was a large portion of brethren from Asia in Jerusalem at this particular time. Maybe this is directly following, of course, the happenings of the day of Pentecost, so you would have an enormous amount of people in town just for that occasion itself. And so we have here in the church at Jerusalem a lot of visitors, probably, maybe. But regardless of the detail, the point is that certain widows were neglected. And so the apostles called and convened the multitude unto them, the disciples, and said, It's not reasonable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, notice this, look ye out among you seven men. And I'm just going to quit at a certain time because uh, I'll just keep on going. And we've got some more important things to do in a little bit. But right now, we're attending to the ministry of the Word. But I want to draw your attention to that very important point when the apostles, not just ordinary common ministers of the New Testament here as we stand now, but the apostles told the church to look out among them seven men upon his report. And so what I gather from this and is the democratic process of the New, Turk, New Testament church and the representatives, they wanted the people at large to choose to represent them in this matter. That, to me, strikes to what we believe is congregational church government. In other words, we don't have a select few that rule over us. He said, you, the church body, look out among you and choose men of honest report. And so the delegation of actually selected was from the whole church. And I'd like to add that the deacon in particular is an office of the church that is needed and needful for that particular assembly. While the ministry, the calling to preach the gospel may be on a much broader scale. A man may be called to preach and eventually go somewhere else. In other words, his calling is suited to a particular congregation now, but maybe in the future somewhere else. But the deacon serves that particular church. He's been called for that purpose. Now, another important point to point out is that the apostles clearly demonstrated their calling and their purpose for which God called them. And that is to preach and teach the gospel. You know, it would be great to go to some pastor or a local church and he's got all this time on his hands to build or maybe purchase a nice riding lawnmower for him so he can cut the grass around the church. I mean, that's a good idea. What else is he doing? Studying the Bible. Well, that's actually his first calling. You see, we don't want our pastor to be busy cutting grass, do we? 
What do we want our pastor to be doing? We want our pastor digging into the Bible, studying the book, so that he has something to say to us when we come Sunday morning and preach to us. That's his first calling. And the apostles now designate this particular need to others. And what is the need? The need is to help in the ministration of the widows. And that raises another point, and that is that the church looks out after the welfare and concern of its members. And in this particular case, it's widows who were neglected in the daily ministration. Now that needs to be clarified with a little bit more uh, in the New Testament as to what and who a widow is. But at first glance, I believe what this is referring to is what recently has been established by the early church, and that is they had sold all things in common, laid the funds at the apostles' feet, and then they distributed. Now, what's going on there? That particular note goes back to the fourth chapter in verse 35. And I am convinced of the fact that they believed not only what the Lord himself said, but also what Daniel the prophet said. And that convinces me more further that the group under consideration, both the Grecians and the Hebrews, were probably all a part of the Jerusalem church. Because it was the Jerusalem church that would soon have to vacate the premises. Now we're probably somewhere um, in a period of time not yet close, maybe another 30 years before 70 AD arrives. I don't know. But what we do know is that the prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem was imminent. And therefore, to sell all and distribute was really a common sense thing to do. And I believe that's some of the backdrop, maybe, that pertains to this. My, that's my personal conjecture concerning uh, you know, the whole picture. The point is that they were neglected. Now, let's look out among the crowd of body of believers, men. And of course, he tells us what kind of men they should be. He said seven in particular, but of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Other portions of the Bible go into further detail concerning the uh, deacons and their qualifications. And so if I were to preach a sermon just on the subject of deacons this morning, I would basically, probably categorize it two ways. I would say in the first place, the deacon office is an office of service, of ministry. Because that's what the word means in the Greek. You know, it's interesting that some people today, they say, oh, that portion of Scripture, it doesn't mention the word deacon. So how is it that you're using it as a foundational uh, purpose for calling it? But in the Greek, it is exactly. And no matter what Greek text you look at, the word uh, diakonie is right there where it says, we should not leave the Word of God and serve, there's the word, in the Greek, the word where we get deacon today. We should not leave the word of God, the apostles said, and serve tables. And he didn't say wait on tables, he said serve tables. And I say that because I'm a picky preacher and I'm picking at the NIV because they use the word serve tables, which to me is a demeaning way of describing the work and office of deacon. They're to minister. 
others and to deal with these practical issues. Now, that might be a, a large thing, but that would be the first aspect that I, if I were to preach a sermon on what a deacon is, I would say that he's a servant. Like the minister, he's a servant. And in particular, in this case, he was serving the needs of widows. He was attending to the particular needs of the widows. Now, over there in 1 Timothy chapter 5, you can read more about who a widow is. Paul said a widow indeed, or literally truly, is a widow that has no other family resource. There, were, there was a time in the Columbia history, I can only gather this from my memory, as Brother Compton told me, I wasn't around when it actually happened, but there was those in our church that were widows who had no support at all, no family, no cousins, no nephews, no nobody, no brothers, no sisters. They were on their own. And when Brother Compton first investigated, he saw the destitution of the members of the church at Columbia. And their names were priests. There was a brother and two sisters. And upon further investigation, the church decided on a regular basis to give them a monthly amount of money to help them. Now, they were widows indeed. And Paul makes the point in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that the widows who had family members were not subject to the health and need and welfare of the church itself. So that they, he drew a very important distinction there. So the widows, of course, here are widows indeed. You know, you think about this for a minute. What a widow is. Now, I know God's interested in widows. One of the first great miracles in the Old Testament was performed on a widow, a woman, a widow, excuse me, uh, Zarephtha uh, of Sidon, city of Sidon. And she was a widow and she lost her son. And you remember Elijah, uh, through Elijah, God raised him back to life. And that was, it demonstrates. Uh, the tenderness that God has toward uh, widows who were left without. And especially back in that day, there was no safety net like we have today. I mean, the extremities for destitution were alive and well, even before this generation. Just think back as far as 1917, 1919, what it was like to be, you know, coming off the, uh, you know, being destitute. You know, after 1929 crash, uh, you know, lines for soup, kitchen lines were, were, uh, were tremendous. You know, because people, they had no other source of help. And they were beggars. They lived in tent cities all over the place. People had no resources. It was much more difficult than today. And so, but God, the point I'm making is God had a very special, keen compassion. Another widow that was healed... Uh, Luke chapter 7, the widow of Nain. And you remember the Lord Jesus Christ catching the tail end, if you will, of a funeral procession. And he looks upon the woman whose son just died. And now the widow, weeping. And Jesus, the Bible says, has compassion on her. You know? So, I see from the scriptures, God has a certain uh, compassion for widows. Well, our deeds are, listen, it's not a glamorous position, is it? If you think about it. They don't come up behind the pulpit and preach, do they? In fact, in the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
both the deacons and the elders are listed in terms of qualifications. Elders are apt to teach, but in the second group, the deacons, that little feature is left out. Because deacons are not called to teach, although in this case in front of us, Stephen will be one who ultimately delivers one of the best sermons recorded in the Bible, in Acts chapter 7, before he is stoned to death. So, while they're not necessarily called to preach, it just leads me to the second most important point, that if I were to preach a sermon on deacons, I would include this part, and that is the soundness of their doctrinal position. So not only are they servants, but also they are to be sound in doctrine. And one of the worst things a church can do is select among them people that are just good businessmen or uh, maybe keep their house in order or well-liked among people outside the church. No, no, that's not qualifications. Now, I've been around churches that selected people uh, because they were good business people. No, they're to be sound in doctrine and in practice. They're to be servants of the Lord, compassionate as God Himself in caring for those that are without. They're to have keen insight on the needs of the people. See? A good deacon is setting and serving the tables. And we have several good ones here at Mount Carmel. You know, every time I come here at Mount Carmel, the doors are open because Brother Don's already here earlier. Most of us. And so there's a lot of responsibility. There are the guys that are doing the work and you never see them doing it. They're undercover. But they're tremendously used by the New Testament church and how important they are. And we're very thankful. And so if we look at a church today like ours, you know what we look like? We look like the early New Testament church who had bishops or elders and deacons. Isn't that a blessing? May the Lord bless us to continue to grow and to build upon that early and precious foundation.